This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, this week we're going to be doing a book review, and the book is The Book of Man, Readings on the Path to Manhood by William J. Bennett. So uh, this is one of the books that was on our list that a lot of you have seen up to this point. It's the 100 books that every modern Christian man should read, uh, and it's in the manhood category. So if you're not familiar with that list, make sure you just go over to our website. It's just www.undaunted.life backslash book list, and that's where you'll find that. And so um, actually, if you were listening to Stephen Mansfield's uh, podcast last week, or his Great Man podcast, uh, he actually recommended this book at the very end of that. And again, I would just kind of throw this out there to you that if you're not listening to that podcast, that's probably another good one for you to be tackling. And that's Stephen Mansfield's Great Man podcast. So again, this book is by William J. Bennett. And I just want to kind of give you a little bit of background on who that is, because you, you might actually recognize him a little bit or recognize that name a little bit rather. So he was actually the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and this was under uh, Bush the Older, so George H.W. Bush. And then he was the Secretary of Education and also the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities under President Reagan. So he's had much, uh, a lot of political ties, and he's done quite a bit in a lot of different areas. Um, he's got uh, his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Williams College. He got his doctorate in political philosophy at the University of Texas, and then he got a law degree from Harvard. So pretty impressive dude, very good background. Um, he's authored a bunch of other books that you, you may recognize some of these, um, the educated child, the death of outrage, the book of virtues. And then there was, I guess, a, a popular two volume set, which was called America, the last best hope. And so, um, he's also, uh, a syndicated radio show host. So I don't know if any of all, any of you have caught his show, but it's Bill Bennett's morning in America. So you, you may have checked that one out, but if that name sounds familiar, so if William J. Bennett sounds familiar, it's because if you go all the way back to episode number two of this podcast, I kind of did uh, my favorite books that I read in 2017, and the book that he wrote called Tried by Fire, uh, I put down as my most humbling book that I read last year. So that was a book about the first thousand years of the Christian church and kind of what the early Christians went through. And so that is another book by him. So it's another very large book, but got a lot of great content in it. So Let's go ahead and talk about the Book of Man. So a cool thing about this book, it is broken up into seven sections. And so each section will cover uh, just a very specific topic. So here are the seven sections of this book. Section one, man in war. Section two, man at work. Section three, man in play, sports, and leisure. Section four, man in the polis. Section five, man with woman and children. Section six, man in prayer and reflection. And then lastly, section seven, man at the end. So uh, it breaks it into a lot of categories that you guys would be very interested in. Uh, some of those you may not be as familiar with or maybe spend uh, a lot of time thinking about those types of areas. Um, but this book is, is really interesting because it uses all kinds of different ways to get points across. Uh, so it's going to use biographies and, and history 
anecdotes, uh, myths, even poetry and essays, and even some some personal letters. And this is really to help give us an overall understanding of manhood as a whole, but also just many different facets of life, a lot of things that would be of importance to us. So um, if you look at this book, in all seven sections, there are almost 300 individual pieces that have been compiled for this book. I mean, it's just just a hair under 300. So there is a whole lot of different information that we can go through and get into on this book. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get into the first section right now. And I want to go and talk to you a little bit about man in war. So in this section, there's a lot of really, really great pieces that it goes into. So uh, he talks about the story of David and Goliath. Uh, He goes into what the Navy SEAL creed is. Uh, There's a profile in there of Audie Murphy. A lot of you know that name. Very, very famous war hero. Uh, And there's even a speech from General Douglas MacArthur, uh, where he was just talking about duty, honor, and country. Um, And one of my favorite quotes just from this entire section, it's it's a huge section with a lot of stories, uh, is this quote right here. So it was John Stuart Mill, who is a British philosopher, this is what he said. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks that nothing is worth war, is much worse. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. I thought that, I mean, that was probably one of my favorite quotes of the entire book right there. So that's almost worth the price of admission. So just a fantastic, fantastic quote. So uh, I did want to read one section to you. Um, One of the sections of this book, one of the pieces was a funeral oration, which was by Pericles. So if you're not familiar with Pericles, he was an Athenian general uh, during the Peloponnesian War. And so the Peloponnesian War uh, was... Yeah, it started around 431 BC, and this was between Athens and Sparta. Okay, and so this was actually a war that the Athenians lost, so Sparta kind of routed them. The the war actually took uh, a considerable amount of time to finish, but uh, it was not a considerably close war, especially toward the end. And so the following that I'm about to read to you is the funeral oration that Pericles delivered at the funeral ceremony that honored the warriors killed in the first year of that war, the first of many years, of course. So, but I'm going to go ahead and get into that now. So here we go. Indeed, if I have dwelt at some length upon the character of our country, it has been to show that our stake in the struggle is not the same as theirs who have no such blessings to lose, and also that the panegyric of the men over whom I am now speaking might be by definite proofs established. That panegyric is now in great measure complete. For the Athens that I have celebrated is only what the heroism of these and their like have made her. Men whose fame, unlike that of most Hellenes, will be found to be only commensurate with their deserts. And if a test of worth be wanted, it is to be found in their closing scene. And this not only in cases in which it is set in the final seal upon their merit, but also in those in which it gave the first intimation of their having any. For there is justice in the claim that steadfastness in his country's battles should be as a cloak to cover a man's other imperfections, since the good action has blotted out the bad, and his merit as a citizen more than outweighed his demerits as an individual. But none of these allowed either wealth, with its prospect of future enjoyment, to unnerve his spirit, or poverty, with its hope of a day of freedom and riches to tempt him to shrink from danger. No holding that vengeance upon their enemies was more to be desired than any personal blessings, and reckoning this to be the most glorious of hazards, they joyfully determined to accept the risk, to make sure of their vengeance, and to let their wishes wait. 
And while committing to hope the uncertainty of final success in the business before them, they thought fit to act boldly and trust in themselves, thus choosing to die resisting rather than to live submitting. They fled only from dishonor, but met danger face to face. And after one brief moment, while at the summit of their fortune, escaped not from their fear, but from their glory. So died these men as became Athenians. You, their survivors, must determine to have as unfaltering a resolution in the field, though you may pray that it may have a happier issue. And not contented with ideas derived only from words of the advantages which are bound up with the defense of your country, though these would furnish a valuable text to a speaker, even before an audience so alive to them as the present, you must yourselves realize the power of Athens and feed your eyes upon her from day to day till love of her fills your heart and then, when all her greatness shall break upon you, you must reflect that it was by courage, sense of duty, and a keen feeling of honor in action that men were enabled to win all this, and that no personal failure in an enterprise could make them consent to deprive their country of their valor. But they laid it at her feet as the most glorious contribution that they could offer. For this offering of their lives made in common by them all, they each of them individually received that renown which never grows old. And for the sepulcher, not so much that in which their bones have been deposited, but that noblest of shrines wherein their glory is laid up to be eternally remembered upon every occasion on which deed or story shall call for its commemoration. For heroes have the whole earth for their tomb, and in lands far from their own, where the column with its epitaph declares it, there is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten with no tablet to preserve it, except that of the heart." These take as your model and, judging happiness to be the fruit of freedom and freedom of valor, never decline the dangers of war. For it is not the miserable that would most justly be unsparing of their lives. These have nothing to hope for. It is rather they to whom continued life may bring reverses as yet unknown, and to whom a fall, if it came, would be most tremendous in its consequences." And surely, to a man of spirit, the degradation of cowardice must be immeasurably more grievous than the unfelt death which strikes him in the midst of his strength and patriotism. Comfort, therefore, not condolence, is what I have to offer to the parents of the dead who may be here. Numberless are the chances to which, as they know, the life of a man is subject. But fortunate indeed are those who draw from their lot of a death so glorious that at which has caused your mourning. And to whom life has been so exactly measured as to terminate in the happiness in which it has been passed. Still I know that this is a hard saying, especially when those are in question of whom you will constantly be reminded by seeing in the homes of others blessings of which once you also boasted. For grief is felt not so much for the want of what we have never known, as for the loss of to which we have long accustomed. Yet you, who are still of age to beget children, must bear up in the hope of having others in their stead. Not only will they help you to forget those whom you have lost, but will be to the state of one's reinforcement and a security. For never can a fair or just policy be expected of the citizens who does not, like his fellows, bring the decision and interest of apprehensions of the father. While those of you who have passed your prime must congratulate yourself with the thought, and the best part of your life was fortunate and that the brief span that remains will be cheered by the fame of the departed. For it is only the love of honor that never grows old, and honor it is, not gain, as some who have it, that rejoices the heart of age and helplessness. 
I mean, that is just incredible. That is just an absolutely incredible thing to have read. And also to think, I mean, that was almost 20, 2,500 years ago, just an incredible thing to deliver to the people that would have been mourning because at this time it wasn't just, uh, just these people, uh, the relatives of the dead rather that were, uh, mourning, but it was an entire country that was mourning. So this is one of your generals kind of coming out and giving you a little bit of a pep talk. So incredibly, incredibly powerful stuff there. So that was the first section there. And that one was on war. So now we're going to move to the second section, and that is man at work. And so there, this obviously goes into what we do with the majority of our lives. Of course, if you add up the amount of time, you know, it's basically sleeping and working. That's what the majority of our life is spent doing. And so in this section, uh, there's some selections from Meditations, which is by Marcus Aurelius, which is also on our book list. Um, you have Ralph Waldo Emerson talking about labor. Um, Jack London, uh, there's an excerpt in there from his work, The Sea Wolf. Um, we have Mark Twain talking about work ethic. And then also Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic Exploration kind of the story behind that, you know, from the early 20th century. But the big thing that I want to highlight from this section was the concept of the strenuous life, uh, which was by our 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt. So um, this was a speech that he delivered um, to the members of the Hamilton Club in Chicago. And it was basically attacking this notion that life should be easy and kind of full of leisure. Like it's okay to have leisure sometimes, but obviously the people that just seek to have life that's full of leisure, it's not really the most appropriate thing uh, for, for us to really shoot and strive for. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the beginning of the speech and one from the end of the speech. So right here, I'm going to go ahead and read a little excerpt from the beginning. So here we go. The timid man, the lazy man, the man who distrusts his country, the over-civilized man who has lost the great fighting, masterful virtues, the ignorant man, and the man of dull mind whose soul is incapable of feeling the mighty lift that thrills stern men with empires in their brains. All these, of course, shrink from seeing the nation undertake its new duties, shrink from seeing us build a navy and an army adequate to our needs, shrink from seeing us do our share of the world's work by bringing order out of chaos in the great fair tropic islands from which the valor of our soldiers and sailors has driven the Spanish flag. These are the men who fear the strenuous life, who fear the only national life which is really worth leading. They believed in the cloistered life which saps the hardy virtues in a nation, and it saps them in the individual. Or else they are wedded to that base spirit of gain and greed which recognizes in commercialism the be-all and end-all of national life, instead of realizing that, though an indispensable element, it is, after all, but one of the many elements that go to make up true national greatness. No country can long endure if its foundations are not laid deep in the material prosperity which comes from thrift from business energy and enterprise, from hard, unsparing effort in the fields of industrial activity, but neither was any nation ever yet truly great if it relied upon material prosperity alone. All honor must be paid to the architects of our material prosperity, to the great captains of industry who have built our factories and our railroads, to the strong men who toil for wealth with brain or hand, for great is the debt of the nation to these and their kind." But our debt is yet greater to the men whose highest type is to be found in the statesmen like Lincoln, a soldier like Grant. They showed by their lives that they recognized the law of work, the law of strife. They toiled to win a competence for themselves and those dependent upon them. But they recognized that there were yet other and even loftier duties, duties to the nation and duties to the race. So that was a short excerpt from the beginning of the speech. And now we're going to go ahead and go to the end. So here we go. 
I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. The 20th century looms before us big with the fate of many nations. If we stand idly by, if we seek merely swollen, slothful ease and ignoble peace, if we shrink from the hard contest where men must win at hazard of their lives and at the risk of all they hold dear, then the bolder and stronger peoples will pass us by and will win for themselves the domination of the world. Let us therefore boldly face the life of strife, resolute to do our duty well and manfully, resolute to uphold righteousness by deed and by word, resolute to be both honest and brave, to serve high ideals, yet to use practical methods. Above all, let us shrink from no strife, moral or physical, within or without the nation, provided we are certain that the strife is justified. For it is only through strife, through hard and dangerous endeavor, that we shall ultimately win the goal of true national greatness." So obviously, those are some very, very famous words from a former president, Teddy Roosevelt. And obviously, this is something that all of us should really think about as we are going through and doing the things that are in our work life and in our personal lives, okay? So uh, a lot of people that, that I know personally that I'm even good friends with, you know, all they want to do is they just want to work for the weekend. So they don't put a whole lot of effort into their normal day-to-day, uh, their normal nine-to-five job or whatever type of job that they have. But even beyond that, it's just, why would we want to look forward to just sitting around doing nothing? Uh, It's never really been a concept that I've understood. I mean, people that, I mean, all they want to do is they just want to end up on a couch somewhere watching a ball game when there's so much more that we can do with our lives and then they carry that same attitude and it works. So it's not just something they do in their personal life. So again, that covers the section kind of man at work. And so we're going to move into section three now, which is man in play sports and leisure. So uh, obviously for a lot of us, we're into these types of things, right? So play, that's all the different hobbies that you have, sports, that's playing sports, watching sports and leisure, you know, being able to react or to relax rather. And that's kind of the thing that I was just talking about in the last section. There's nothing wrong with, with having these types of activities, but it's when you like worship at the altar of sitting on the couch, that's when it becomes a little bit dangerous. So This section has some really good stories in it. Uh, It has a couple of profiles of some athletes that you're going to be familiar with. So Pistol Pete Maravich and also Aaron Rodgers. Um, There's a story in there about a big wave surfer, Eddie Aikau, who actually died. They did a little 30 for 30 on him and kind of the sacrifice he made. Uh, There's even another uh, story from Teddy Roosevelt. He he was obviously a huge guy on hunting and action and adventure. So this was a very um, important thing in his life. So he kind of described the other side of the coin where it's the guy just kind of getting to relax by doing things that he absolutely enjoys. But there's a story in here that uh, I had never heard before, and maybe some of you had heard it, but I wanted to share it for you. And it's about, it's about a mountain climbing accident that happened on K2. It's a really uh, tragic story. Uh, obviously, it's called Tragedy on K2, but um, it was just a, a really great story of sacrifice and kind of teamwork and, and different things like that. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to you now. So K2 is this, the second highest mountain in the world after Mount Everest. Standing at 28,251 feet tall, K2 is located on the border between China and Pakistan. K2 has the dubious title of Savage Mountain because of the number of people who have died trying to climb it. As of July 2010, only 302 people have completed the ascent of K2, compared to more than 2,700 climbers who have conquered Everest. At least 77 people have died attempting to climb K2. This means that for every four people that have reached the summit, one has died trying, making K2 the most dangerous climb on Earth. 
There are several factors that make K2 so perilous. First is the lack of oxygen due to the extremely high altitude. There is only one third as much oxygen available at the summit of K2 as there is at sea level. The second factor is the unpredictable and violent storms that sweep across K2 and can last several days. Finally, all the climbing routes up K2 are steep, precipitous, and exposed, making the climb itself dangerous and the retreat even more dangerous. The Savage Mountain earned its name for a reason. The first successful ascent was made on July 31, 1954 by the Italian expedition of Achille Combagnoni and Lino Lasadelli. Only one year earlier, Charles Houston led an American expedition up K2 in what became one of the most iconic and tragic climbs in mountain climbing history. Houston and his team, the 1953 Third American Karakoram Expedition, began their ascent, establishing camps 1 through 3 with relative ease because of good weather. They established Camp 8 at an elevation of about 25,500 feet and began their attempt to conquer the summit. It was here that things went from good to bad to tragic very quickly. While stationed at Camp 8, horrible storms trapped all eight members of the team for seven days. With hurricane-force winds, blizzard-like snow, and rapidly depleting supplies of food and drink, their dreams of the summit hung by a thread. That thread snapped when Art Gilkey became terribly sick and needed to be evacuated. Even though it was nearly impossible to lower their sick comrade down to the, the side of K2, Houston and his men were determined to save their friend from certain death on the side of the mountain. When a break in the storms finally came, the team began to lower Gilkey, only to be turned away by the threat of avalanches. They retreated to Camp 8 and waited until the next day. Furious winds and driving snow met them again the next day. But Gilkey was so sick by this time that they couldn't turn back. Foot by foot, the, the team began the daunting task of lowering Gilkey down the steep descent of K2. All of a sudden, a mass fall began when climber George Bell slipped and fell on a patch of ice, pulling on his rope mate, Tony Streether. As they fell, the rope tangled with those connecting Houston, Bell, Gilkey, and Dee Molinaire, pulling all these men off of their feet as well. Finally, all of the weight came bearing down on Pete Shoning. Instantly wrapping the rope around his shoulders with an ice axe, Shoning stopped the fall of all six climbers and prevented them from falling to their certain death. Amazingly, the eight-man team was still intact. Shoning's hold was an amazing act of strength and determination. After the climbers recovered and proceeded to tent at Camp 7, they anchored Gilkey to the ice as they prepared the tent. When the climbers returned to get him, they found no trace of him. A faint track in the snow suggesting an avalanche was the only evidence left of Gilkey. Gilkey's death, while heartbreaking and tragic, undoubtedly saved the rest of the expedition by allowing them to descend without having to carry him. Most authors and historians believe that Gilkey realized the burden he was to the team and released himself to save the team the ultimate act of selfless sacrifice. The remaining seven men survived a harrowing descent. Their expedition remains one of the most gripping and moving stories in mountaineering history. Their survival is a testament to the strength of human will and the incredible links men will go to to save their fallen friends. Men at play often reveal the character beneath. So again, that's a, a very tragic story, but the self-sacrifice that we saw Gilkey give in that moment is something that we are obviously still talking about today because we've all been in situations where we've needed to help out a friend. This is obviously a very extreme situation, but uh, it was just something where play and sports and, and leisure are things that are very important to our lives, but every now and then we come up with opportunities that could be very important for us in terms of sacrificing for others. So in this particular story, Gilkey, he sacrificed his life, but uh, there's a lot of mountaineering stories that don't go uh, nearly as heroically, and uh, obviously 
we we are better for Gilkey and being able to tell his story and obviously the other people on the expedition are better because they were able to live to tell about it so we're going to leave that section now and now we're going to go into section four which is man in the polis and so the word polis may not be something that you're very familiar with i obviously when i first read through it i was like wait a minute i feel like i should know that word but i don't so um, i'm just going to read to you from that first section of that section and tell you what that all means so the word polis originated from the ancient greek idea of a city-state instead of a city or town being ruled by a king or a small oligarchy the greeks developed the polis a self-contained entity governed by a body of citizens. It's the root of such words as politics, polity, and metropolis. The idea of self-governance, autonomy, and independence passed down by the Greeks remains to this day the foundation for modern democracy. So obviously we, uh, as Western Americans, we obviously have a lot that we owe to the Greeks uh, and the things that they figured out a long time ago. And this section goes into a lot of the important reasons why that is so great to us now. And so uh, in this section, there's a lot of great works. Uh, there's a profile uh, on Navy SEALs and specifically the ones that uh, did the UBL raid. So the, the raid to get Osama bin Laden. Um, also, there was Teddy Roosevelt showing up again. He just can't uh, get out of uh, all these notes here. Uh, he went through a speech that was called Duties of American Citizenship. Uh, Grover Cleveland kind of talked about what he felt was uh, what made up a good citizen. Um, and then there's the amazing story of a math teacher named Jaime Escalante, um, so if you've ever seen the movie Stand and Deliver, it's that that guy and that whole section there. Uh, and then there's the story of Cincinnatus, uh, which is something that we're going to save for a future episode because his story is just incredible. Um, and so we're going to get into that later on. But uh, one very quick thing that I wanted to read from that section, just to wrap up this section, was the Athenian Oath. So um, that basically the young men of ancient Athens, they would repeat the Athenian Oath once they reached the age of 17. Okay, So the Oath really emphasized uh, a true obligation and loyalty and service to the polis and its citizens. So it's very, very short. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the Athenian Oath to you. So here we go. We will never bring disgrace on this our city by an act of dishonesty or cowardice. We will fight for the ideals and sacred things of the city, both alone and with many. We will revere and obey the city's laws and will do our best to incite a like reverence and respect in those above us who are prone to annul them or set them at naught. We will strive increasingly to quicken the public's sense of civic duty. Thus, in all these ways, we will transmit this city, not only not less, but greater and more beautiful than it was transmitted to us. So, uh, I don't know what you guys were doing when you were 17 and I don't really remember what I was doing when I was 17, but I wasn't really reciting really cool stuff like that. So give it up to the Athenians for being complete bad A's about everything. So that's a really cool section there going into the polis. So section five, this was a section called man with woman and children. So uh, if you listen to the app, the last episode, that was episode six of this podcast, I went into the subject of abortion. And obviously at the very end of that, I talked about how there are so many men missing from the lives of their children. And obviously this is a concept that's not lost on the author of this book as well, because this is something that Bennett said in the very beginning section of this part here about women and children. So here we go with Bennett. Men are missing from the lives of women and children today in increasing numbers. Almost half of all babies born in the 21st century in the United States are born out of wedlock. Single mothers and fatherless children are an increasing phenomena in our culture today. Many women are left on their own to wonder, where are the good men? Where are the fathers? The reason for this sad state of affairs are many. There are massive cultural shifts, 
There is personal irresponsibility and dereliction, and there is too little education and intentional preparation of boys for manhood. Much too often, men perceive fatherhood only as a burden, not a privilege. Fewer and fewer men understand the virtues and rewards of marriage and fatherhood. Since the sexual revolution, our cultures transition into a postmodern, liberated society, the ideas of love and marriage have been cheapened, confused, and diluted. Cultural anthropologist David Murray remarked that when you see a young child with a woman walking down the street today, it's a natural fact. But when you see a young child with an attentive man, it's a cultural achievement. I mean, just think about that last part, guys. I mean, obviously we see we see women and children all the time, but there are moments in life where even I will see a dad with a kid, you know, and the dad's actually paying attention and not buried in his phone or buried, you know, doing something else. And it, it does kind of seem like a cultural achievement, which kind of gives you a sense of where we're at right now. So uh, this section here was another very interesting section. There was some interesting stuff by a Scottish writer named uh, Thomas Carlyle. It was just basically advice to young men. Um, James Freeman Clark, who was a 19th century preacher and author, he kind of talked about the differences between true and false manhood. Uh, but the section I wanted to pull out here and read to you all was a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the son of a friend who had named him after Thomas Jefferson. This kid's name was Thomas Jefferson Smith. So this was when Thomas Jefferson was uh, quite a bit older than uh, whenever we saw him come onto the historical scene during the revolution. Uh, But this was a letter that he wrote to Thomas Jefferson Smith. This letter will to you be as one from the dead. The writer will be in the grave before you can weigh its counsels. Your affectionate and excellent father has requested that I would address to you something which might possibly have a favorable influence on the course of life you have to run, and I too, as a namesake, feel an interest in that course. Few words will be necessary with good disposition on your part. Adore God, reverence and cherish your parents, love your neighbor as yourself and your country more than yourself. Be just, be true, murmur not at the ways of providence. So shall the life into which you have entered be the portal to one of eternal and ineffable bliss. And if to the dead it is permitted to care for the things of this world, every action of your life will be under my regard. Farewell. And then he uh, shared this part here. A decalogue of canons for observation in practical life. So he shares 10 things with uh, Thomas Jefferson Smith here. So here we go. Number one, never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Number two, Never trouble another for what you can do yourself. Number three, never spend your money before you have it. Number four, never buy what you do not want because it is cheap. It will be dear to you. Number five, pride costs us more than hunger, thirst, and cold. Number six, we never repent of having eaten too little. Number seven, nothing is troublesome that we will do willingly. Number eight, How much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened? Number nine, take things always by their smooth handle. And number ten, when angry, count ten before you speak. If very angry, a hundred. Okay, so some of that, it was a little choppy to read because it was written kind of in old English, but hopefully it came across. But uh, that was a very good section there. Uh, Again, just talking about man with woman and children. So for all you uh, husbands and fathers out there, that would be a great section to read as well. And now we're going to get into section six here, and that is man in prayer and reflection. So this was a a very unique section, uh, especially for us, because we talk a lot about spiritual, mental, and physical resilience as a ministry, right? Um, And this 
that has a lot of different individual prayers and a lot of different ways that people think about prayer and reflection. And I thought that the author, uh, before he went into the individual stories, summed that up pretty well. And so here was a quote from the beginning of that section. While you can judge a man's physical manhood by the weight he can lift or pace of his sprint, his mental manhood is more elusive. The development of the mind is a nonlinear event with no specific milestones or checkpoints. It's an internal struggle, a push and a pull that's often two steps forward and one step back. But we welcome the fight. The real man smiles in trouble, said American pamphleteer Thomas Paine, gathers strength from distress and grows brave by reflection. So obviously uh, we talk about that a lot because, you know, you have the guys that are physically capable and you can see that obviously like when someone puts up a very strong bench press or squat, you can see it when someone's really, really fast, you can see it whenever they can swim really far, you can see it. But mental fortitude, or as we like to say, mental resilience, it's kind of hard to see. And then the spiritual side as well. I mean, there's so many people that walk around pretending to be spiritual and pretending to be spirit filled, but you would never be able to judge that. You know what I mean? So this section, I mean, there's thoughts on prayer by St. Augustine. Uh, there's some individual prayers from guys like Martin Luther and Spurgeon and GK Chesterton and Billy Graham. And even talks about the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, but the one I wanted to read, and this was a very short prayer, uh, because this particular man is, is very important to me. So this was George W. Bush. So uh, he was the very first uh, presidential candidate that I voted for, because whenever I turned 18, that was the year that John Kerry and George W. Bush were uh, vying for the presidency. And, you know, obviously he endured a lot as a president. And um, for eight years, he, it just basically was up and down and he was made fun of left and right and all these different things. And so, um, but this was a prayer, uh, for the departed and it was a prayer right after the September 11th attacks. Okay. So he was addressing the nation. And so this is when you need to see a lot from your president. You need to see, uh, some strength. You need to see resolve and you need to see action, um, remorse, different things that you might expect. Uh, but he was also very quick to make sure that prayer was a part of this. So I'm going to go ahead and read this short section from his address to the nation. We come before God to pray for the missing and the dead and for those who love them. On this national day of prayer and remembrance, we ask Almighty God to watch over our nation and grant us patience and resolve in all that is to come. We pray that he will comfort and console those who now walk in sorrow. We thank him for each life we now must mourn and the promise of a life to come. As we have been assured, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth can separate us from God's love. May he bless the souls of the departed. May he comfort our own. And may he always guide our country. So, uh, I mean, again, he's got his faults. There are issues that happened during his presidency. And obviously those are things that cannot be diminished, but, uh, this truly was a man of God. You can see that just about everywhere in this man's life. And, uh, I really lament the fact that, uh, our current president and the president that came just after Bush, uh, neither one of them seemed to have a, a real true faith, uh, and seemed to share things like this in times of mourning. Uh, it's, it always seemed kind of forced and I know I'm going a little bit political here, but, um, it always seemed very, very genuine from, uh, from W Bush in my opinion. So, uh, that was a very important thing for me to read. So I really like that from that section. And then the last section of the book is section seven, and that's just man at the end. Okay. So it's a really, really short section, uh, definitely compared to the others, but it, I mean, it had some obituaries and some different things in there, but it really was just kind of a bow on the last part of the book. So obviously this book went 
in a lot of different directions and it really was incredible. But I want to just kind of give you three very quick reasons why you should read this book. Okay. Because again, I, I could do my review and I could read some things from it, but I, I really want you to internalize these because I'd really like for you to read this book. So the first reason that I think you should read this is this is going to be a springboard into other areas of study. If you'll remember from the very beginning, there's almost 300 individual pieces from this book. So if you can't find something interesting in this book, if you can't find an interesting character or person from history or something like that, and I mean this in the meanest way possible, there is something wrong with you. Okay. So there's so much here that you can get. Not everything is going to be exciting to you. I I mean, there were several sections in several pieces. I was like, ah, didn't really do anything for me, but obviously there were a lot more that did. So that's number one. It's a springboard into other areas of study. Second reason why I think you should read this book is it's perhaps the best father son book that you could read together. Okay. Because again, here's the deal. It's a bunch of short stories. All right. I mean, some of these sections were you know, a third of a page long to maybe seven or eight pages long, right? So the reads are pretty easy. Uh, they're in digestible sections. So obviously I'm, I don't have a son right, right now. I don't have any kids, but if you're a father and you're wanting to kind of teach a young man, I mean, even eight or nine years old about different virtues of manhood. I mean, just look at the sections of this book that we've already talked about. So I really think that this could be a fantastic father son book. And so the last reason that I really think that you should read this book is just the importance of storytelling, okay? The importance of storytelling. Um, You know this whenever you see it. You know when there's people in your life that they just know how to tell stories, that everything that's happening in life, good or bad or indifferent, they they have a story that kind of goes along with what's happening in that area of their life. And so this book is full of, like I said, almost 300 different stories. So if you can just have these even in the back of your head as you're going through your normal regimented life, uh, I think it would be something that would be very valuable for you. So again, three reasons to read this book a springboard into other areas of study. Second, perhaps the best father-son book out there. And third, the importance of storytelling. So again, we're going to do a quick resilience boost here at the end. So as a lot of you know, at this point, we're a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Today, it's mental resilience. And it's very, very simple, guys. Buy this book and read it. I mean, I mean, that's it. Buy the book, read it. By, by this point, you should be at least uh, curious as to how it could be beneficial for you and maybe some other guys that are in your life. And really, let me know what it springboards for you, right? Because the first reason I gave you to do this was it'll springboard into other studies. So did you go through this book and then really want to dive deep into Polycarp? Okay. Did you go into this book and really want to dive even further into the life of General MacArthur or Teddy Roosevelt or any one of the other historical characters? So Email me at info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life and let me know what this springboarded for you, okay? So thank you guys as always for listening in. I always appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. Also, share this on social media if you tag us or if you do the hashtag undauntedlife, just we'll be able to find you and like it and we really, really appreciate that. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave that for us. That's how we're gonna continue to climb to get more listens and get more people actively involved in our ministry. Our website is www.undaunted.life. 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and on Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we'd like to thank August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.